Welcome back to the Advent Book Club, presented by Theology and Reality. I'm your host, Josh Madden, and we are into episode three. We're so happy to have you back. So without further ado, let's get started. And we are on chapter three, the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. And this is really interesting because we aren't just talking about the birth of Jesus. We are talking very much about why it is in Bethlehem. <laughs> uh, so he dives right into that, Josh, and it's it's looking at it from a historical um, and theological framework at first. So I'm really curious about your thoughts about looking at this and putting Christ in history and this sort of mix of looking and reading the gospels um theologically and spiritually and personally um while looking at the historical element like he comes into our time and space and this sort of connection um because there's he you know ratzinger points out there are some differences in the two narratives that we can kind of highlight like how is this not a problem for us well one of the most important things he points out, he doesn't use this phrase, but it's what he's essentially saying. It's not once upon a time, right? Mm -hmm. He stresses over and over again, the fact that this event occurs within history at a particular time, at a particular place, and that it's especially evident in Luke's narrative because Luke kind of starts off almost talking about himself, right? In, mm -hmm. in a way that's really unique among the different gospels where Luke is starting off basically telling you about himself and who he's writing to and why he's doing it and what had come before, right? He's basically telling you um, a lot of other people have done this and they've written accounts and they've recorded a bunch of stuff, but now I'm going to do it too. Mm -hmm. And so he is very much setting this up as history and there will be some points later on in the chapter where ratzinger brings up the question about the evangelists as authors and what they may or may not be changing if that's an appropriate word I can use in the moment. We can we can talk about it and explain it later, right? Not that they're making things up, right? But they're authors and they, they have to choose how to write their very, very tiny book mm -hmm. about, you know, what St. John says, you know, you, you couldn't fill the whole world with books about Jesus. And mm -hmm. so they have to make very specific choices. Uh, but it is very, very interesting that he puts this emphasis on the history of this event where sometimes we tend to maybe overlook that aspect and only think about the the mystical or the mysterious or the supernatural aspect of the gospel story because that's so important obviously but mm -hmm. this historical aspect is really important yeah and actually ratzinger ties in um augustus right away and talks about like his role in all of this with saying that all the world needs to be enrolled during this time and this is huge because it totally affects the holy family and the holy family you know changes their path according to this like like their path their destiny is like going to bethlehem is due to this decree which is really interesting um and also i loved that on page 59 um we're looking at like the period of time right like 
where where Ratzinger writes, it's the fullness of time when the savior enters into the world. And that's really interesting because it it was just like all this waiting. And we talked about that with last chapter. And now it's like, he's here and, and hmm. we're at this fullness of time. I think there's so much buried in that. Like there's so much depth to that. Yeah. I guess that's, it's interesting you put it that way. I hadn't thought about it reading through the chapter that way, mm-hmm. but there's two things you could probably say about the first is that the first verse in the letter to the Hebrews explains that partially where Hebrews says in these last days, God finally sent his son he'd spoken to us through the prophets before, but now in the last days he sent us his son. So there's a certain sense in which ever since the incarnation, we're living in the end times Mm -hmm. because it's the last kind of thing that we were waiting to happen. So even if, even if where we're living now proves to be like the early patristic age of the church that lasts a hundred thousand years, it's still technically the end times because we're in, the, we're in the last era before the end. The so, ev- end, yeah. Okay. Right? That's so no matter really, how long it lasts, that's really it's the last era. But the second thing, and it's slipped my mind, but I know it will come immediately back. As soon as I, maybe I just talk long enough, it will come back. <laughs> um, oh, this is what it was. The question, a lot of the fathers and the scholastics asked the question, why didn't God just send Jesus right after Adam and Eve sinned? Because he could have, right? Mm -hmm. So this question is like, well, why wait so long for so much of Israel's history? And why wait for all the, why wait for a bunch of new bad things to happen? Or why not send it in the time of Noah? Mm -hmm. Right? Why why wait till now? Mm -hmm. And there's a certain sense in which there's at least part of the answer that we can't know because it's just, it's up to sort of the mystery of the divine will, right? God right. wills what he does. And sometimes we just need to accept it because we don't know. But the other answer is that in a lot of, a lot of the great saints down the age and theologians in the church have talked about how humanity, essentially they didn't put it this way, but I'll rephrase it. The humanity needed to learn their lesson basically, mm-hmm. right? We needed to learn our own weakness, that we can't do it ourselves. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, and then that's part of what the old law was meant to do too. The old law was meant to show us, this is what's demanded of you and you can't fulfill it. And so it's almost like a kind of training exercise to wait for the appropriate time mm-hmm. for finally Christ and grace to come to give us the ability after we've learned, hopefully, and to be humble and learned we can't do it ourselves. Now is the appropriate, the fullness of time where finally grace can come and give us that ability to actually fulfill the law. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting because we're still called to go through that training process individually uh, um, as members of the church, but to receive Christ more fully, we have to be trained and, right. and we go through our own trials and um, suffering and different you know, life events that teach it, teaches us to be humbled before the Lord and more ready to receive him. So that's really, that's really interesting. The other thing here, and I'm curious if like you were interested in learning Augustus's history, because Ratzinger goes a lot on 
um, he writes a lot about his characteristics and Am how I interested would, or is the audience. If you're, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if you're interested because okay. I can't see you being interested in this. Now, maybe I'm wrong, but as your wife, I'm just curious because it says, you know, he's like, he's talking about Augustus and his self image of universality and being peaceful and being this almost like this savior figure to the world at the time as the emperor um so is that like is that interesting to you it well it's interesting in the sense that 2000 years later we miss some of the political implications of the language of the gospel mm-hmm. so you would call right you know caesar's caesar's sort of title would have been curios mm-hmm. right would, you know which obviously we use that for christ Right. Right. And and God in the Greek Old Old Testament, right? That's the translation of the, the divine name. So it'd be, you know, Kaiser Kurios, but no, no, we say Christos Kurios. Yeah, I'm just that's one thing. Or um, like Savior and Redeemer, which was Right. Which so was all of these kind of Zeus. Yeah. All of these kind of salvific titles and honorifics would have gone to the emperor, but now they're being given to Christ. And even when Caesar would have won a victory and sort of marched back into town, they would have been announcing the the, the good news hmm. of Caesar's victory, right? The euangelion, the gospel of his message. And so there's a certain sense in which you can kind of see some slight political subversion in the mm-hmm. gospels by them using all the same titles and the same words, but they're announcing a different kind of victory and a mm-hmm. different kind of king. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's maybe. I think that also sets sets it up to discuss who Christ is once again, like going back to that because he's not this political leader, and you have you have these expectations there, right? In the Israel. identity question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I'm kind of I'm on page sixty four right now. Um, did you have any more thoughts on? Augustus and like that and the only the only other thing before we move on I guess is just that the idea that I think I was mentioning a few minutes ago this idea that the incarnation happens at a particular in a very particular time and place right and there's a certain sense in which this is referred to as the the scandal of particularity right this idea well if if God's universal and wouldn't his salvation be universal isn't it kind of scandalous to say well God's incarnate in this one person in this one little town to this one small people right doesn't that sort of take away from its universality and the idea is that well it has to be I mean if it's going to come to humanity it has to come through to them somehow mm-hmm. right and one of the things that a lot of the sort of 16th century reformers and afterward one of the big mistakes that they make is to think that scripture somehow needs to be de-hellenized or you need to sort of go back let's go back to the gospel message let's sort of remove all of this greek stuff that we get in the early church and Mm -hmm. you know right away in the sort of early Catholicizing and let's sort of strip away all of this stuff and just get back to what does the Bible say, right? But the problem with that is that providence decided, right? God and his providence decides this is when the incarnation is going to happen and this is where it's going to happen and this is how I'm going to guide the church all the way through these eras. And so this idea that Christ Christ comes at this time where 
the Roman Empire has kind of conquered everything there is to conquer, and there's relative peace, and the world's not at war, and because of Alexander and everybody else that came before him, and then the Roman Empire, Roman Empire after him, mm-hmm. we get this Hellenistic culture where you've got the Roman roads and the Roman peace combined with everyone speaking Greek, right. and this Greek culture that's spread throughout the entire known world, and then you get the gospel written in Greek, it provides like the exact right conditions for this message to spread as far and wide as fast as possible. Right. And so that's a really just really fascinating aspect of divine providence that can be overlooked, but it's really important. It's so important. And actually it just fits in right here. Like I just have underlined faith attaches itself to this concrete reality. And that's what it reminds me of is just that the spiritual is connected to our reality, to matter, to time, to space. It's all interconnected. So um, the fact that Christ came when he did, where he did, it's all meaningful and it's filled with layers, both spiritually, personally to each of us, and then also in this universal way and um, as a mark in history. So him, you know, Christ being born in Bethlehem is so significant for so many different reasons. Um, the first, uh, thing that Ratzinger points out is the prophet Micah, um, saying that the shepherd of Israel would be born in Bethlehem, but there's also even just the name of Bethlehem. I love, I love this, how it's house. It means house of bread. Um, it's just so poetic. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but grew up in Nazareth. So let's talk about that. What is the significance of his birthplace versus where he's living? Also, I have a question here. So in Bethlehem, like, okay, if Joseph is going to Bethlehem, yeah, I know it's the city of David, but he's going there for the census. So it says that it's likely he owned land there or property. And so my, my question is, so who, who was in the property that he couldn't go to that property and and be there? You know, maybe he ends up in a cave. Well, maybe he, maybe he owned the inn. Well, then they could (laughs) have left them in a room. Well, I don't know. Oh, it's fine. I'll just go with my pregnant wife to the cave. Well, if he's renting it out and there's no room left, I mean, I don't know. No. There is no way like this to me is really strange that they no one would take them in. Like if they have family and everything, just being Middle Eastern myself, I don't understand how this is possible in that culture. Like in that culture, it's like, come, you know. So there's definitely some things here that I like it. It rings some bells in my head of things that I've read and studied in the past. But this book probably would have been years and years ago. And so I can't remember explicitly what it would be. But from what I can remember, the idea would be that this like their situation wouldn't be that abnormal because we tend to think, especially in the 21st century, those, especially those folks who like have never grown up on a farm or anything like that. Mm-hmm. We tend to keep our people places and our animal places really separate. Like, Oh, I would never put a guest in a barn. Oh my goodness. But in the ancient world, right? A lot of the time your, your cave, your stable and all that kind of thing is either connected to your house or maybe the bottom floor or bottom level of your house would be very like interconnected. And so not that it would be this, so that they, that there's no room in the in part and they have to go stay in the stable wouldn't be 
wouldn't be like, oh, this has never happened before. Like what a, what a sort of horrible thing that they did. It would probably be relatively normal, but the idea would be that they, there wasn't any room in like the best rooms, I suppose would, would sort of be my thinking. Um, so that's one thing to say about it, okay. but I don't know about, yeah, his, his speculation about why they would have to go to Bethlehem. Mm-hmm is an interesting one because we're not really told a lot there's we're sort of just going on pure extra biblical sort of historical sources and information so one hypothesis is that well maybe they had to actually go to bethlehem because he owned uh some property or a home or land there or something like that and so that's why they had to go Mm -hmm. so why they end up at where they do with the inn and the stable and everything else versus well, if he owned land, why didn't he go there? Or if it's his hometown, wouldn't he have relatives maybe or family? Mm-hmm. Why didn't they go there? I mean, those are, those are questions that we just don't have the answer to. I mean, maybe, maybe it's just as simple as they, Mary was like literally about to give birth mm-hmm. and they didn't have the time to go the extra five miles or something. And it's like, we have to stop now. Mm-hmm. Who, who knows? I, I don't know. It's an interesting question. It's a though. mystery. Yeah. Well, I, I was curious about it. You'll so know one day, I suppose. Yeah. God willing. We will know one day. God willing. <laughs> um, okay. So with, um, I'm at page 66, the birth of Jesus. So building on that earlier, right. And so not to say that I don't want to, I don't want to make it seem like I'm sort of going against the mainstream of the Christian tradition and saying, Oh, well, you know, Jesus's birth situation really wasn't all that bad. Right. It's, it's not, not that. Cause we have this whole tradition of being very humble Right. A humble situation because, but it was. Yes. Right. So I'm not, I'm not trying to say that it's not that because it is. Um, I'm just sort of attempting to put a little historical context into it. But the fact of the matter is, even if that's, even if that is the case, even if the hypothetical I just laid out is actually what was the fact, the fact of the matter, the reality would still be that the God of the universe appears sure. in the form of a, chubby salivating baby like in a cave and gets stuck in a food trough for animals right so it's, it doesn't go against that kind of uh sort of our our sort of pious imagination of this very sort of humble origins for that and he he connects it i think i think that he does right to that the line in john's prologue about him coming to his own and his own not accepting him mm-hmm. it's yeah, the same does. kind of thing right so john doesn't give us a infancy narrative but he includes the same sentiment or the same sort of theological concept that he comes to his own city right not just into the world that he created right but apparently to his you know hometown by birthright and there's no room for him there yes and can we just stop here for a second because such a theme in this book is poverty and how christ comes to the impoverished and we can see that here like even with his birth there is a just such a deep spiritual element to this like there was no room for him in the inn so are we making that room for him in our hearts are we uh, you know because he comes to the impoverished the little ones the humble the Uh you know the and and, you know it makes sense in the worldly light we're like he you know we think we need to have it all together and 
be something grand, like the grand hotel or something, but really he's just like, he wants to come to the little ones. And this is, so it has such a deep meaning that again is connected to this reality in time and space. It's a lesson through history. We can see like these deeper, um, just spiritual elements to this of teaching us how to make room for Christ in our own hearts. Yeah. I mean, I was going to bring this up later, but it's probably a good time to just talk about it now. Mm -hmm. That is a really important theme in this book. And I think, but I think it's for a reason. I think it's because that's who the Holy family is. That's who they identify with. And it's who Christ identifies with, because there's this very important stream in the old Testament tradition. It's called, um, right. This kind of on spirituality, which mm-hmm. is sort of the Hebrew term for the poor and the lowly and the humble. Right? You see it a lot in the, in the Psalms, this idea that God cares for the on He cares for those who are impoverished or on the margins, right? It's why the Psalms and the wisdom literature mm-hmm. are so insistent that Israel care for the widow and the orphan, right? So those who are sort of most vulnerable mm-hmm. right, are meant to be most taken care of. And that's why the prophets have so much to say and how much sort of, how, how much sort of excoriating language they have for Israel's leadership when they fail to do that. Mm-hmm. But that's who, that's who Christ chooses for his own family, right? It's part of, it's a main theme in the Magnificat, mm-hmm. right? It's all throughout the Psalms. Um, so there's a sense in which when he talks later on in the chapter about the shepherds, mm-hmm. that's important, but I guess we could sort of come back to that in a little bit. Um, but this sort of paradox of the unexpected happening and sort of worldly wisdom being overturned mm-hmm. that you theologically see in a lot of Paul's writing where Paul talks a lot about this, um, this sort of overturning of the worldly wisdom and God's foolishness versus our foolishness or God's wisdom versus our wisdom. But mm-hmm. he mentions that here in this passage on the birth of Jesus about us having to, as Christians sort of leave behind the standards of the world in order to follow what the gospel message is meant to be because they're in one sense, the gospel message is kind of a intensifying of the natural law. So what we as human beings know to be right already. Mm-hmm. And yet on the other hand, it's also a subversion of our expectations and what we might naturally want to do at the same time. So it's this very paradoxical sort of marriage of those two things. It's, that's really curious. And that, he, as he points out, that the infancy narratives do such a good job of showing us. All right, so what about, we had talked about it a week or two ago, I think, but he brings it up here specifically. And there's some really interesting things that I was thinking, but what about your thoughts on him pointing out the parallel imagery between him being wrapped in swaddling cloth and then the end of the passion narratives where he's wrapped for burial. 
Yeah. And the fact also that tradition tells us that he was born in a cave too. Like this is really interesting how he comes into the world and how he leaves the world is so um, similar. Like how he starts and where, where his body starts and where his, his body finishes. I guess I should say that because he leaves the world on the cross, but, but then like his body is placed in the cave again. This is so beautiful. Also the Pieta, I was thinking, you know, so at first mm-hmm. you have him come and our lady wraps him in swaddling clothes and like lays him in the major. And then I was just thinking like then of the Pieta, mm-hmm. you know, like she's, she holds his body in the end as well. Um, his mother is always there. There's something. Yeah. Well, yeah. artistically, I always find the Pieta really interesting because of Michelangelo's choice to make Mary so much bigger mm-hmm. than Christ. Mm-hmm. Even though if he had done it true to life, there's almost, there's almost, it's, it's like absolutely not like the case of what it had, like a, a fully grown man. Like right. it's going to be larger than his sort of aging mother, especially 2000 years ago. Right. Right. So she was probably a very tiny person. Right. <laughs> right. But to make her almost not gigantic, right? But she's she's clearly bigger than him. And so there's that sense that 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 proportion subconsciously makes you think of her in even more of a maternal role. Yes, that because he becomes of a mother. smaller in her yes. arms. Yes. Which is really interesting. Oh, I love that. You know, that's so cool. I've never thought of that before. Oh, that's really interesting. But there's, if you now, in, I I should, if we if we had like an art historian on, they could probably say a lot more about this. But from from what I remember, there are some interesting cases in the Middle Ages of different Christian produced sacred art depicting Mary in priestly garments because of the infancy narrative and because of what he points out right here. So if you imagine this parallel he's pointing out, right, where Mary takes the body of Christ mm-hmm. right, and wraps him up as if and lays him in the manger. Mm-hmm. Right, So she lays the body of Christ, the bread of life on this stone right, the, altar. The altar, yeah. It's, it's almost like a quasi- priestly sacrificial act of hers right so how are you going to not scandalize everyone and explain right well in the (laughs) well that's why that's why the church came out and was like you can't depict mary in priestly garments okay because she wasn't a priest there was some clarity there right yeah so so there's but there but there is also a sense in which the truths of the faith sometimes sort of bleed into and out of each other right where as a man I'm not going to become a woman or a bride, but right. because I'm a Christian, there is a certain sense in which I should attempt to sort of embody the the church's like bridal relationship to Christ. Right. You see that a For lot. Union with God, like John of the Cross style. Yeah, I was. Yeah, I was going to say you see it a lot in the sort of the medieval cistercian spirituality with Mm -hmm. bernard of clairvaux for instance Mm -hmm. right they have no problem talking about themselves in kind of feminine terms because of the bridal nature of the church and so the flip side of that coin would be to see there in some sense right as any 
baptized Christian, right, is sort of baptized into Christ's priesthood, mm-hmm. Mary kind of fulfills that baptismal role most perfectly mm-hmm. and offers her own son, right? That's part of what we see. We're not, you know, getting into her role in the passion, which we could talk about, but that's not what that book, that's not what this book is about. Right, right. But here you see sort of the early shades of it where she's participating in this sacrificial act of Christ by even here yeah. wrapping him up and laying him in the manger. And preparing him and preparing his body. Like that's, yeah. It's, right. Yeah, it's exactly. So interesting. So the manger becomes an altar as he yeah. points out here. Yeah. And then there's the animals around the altar. I mean, this, I mean, you guys. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Here so, we are. <laughs> right. So like I said, the church had to kind of suppress the sacred art depicting Mary in priestly garments. Yes. But it's not, but but there is a, a part there was a re- there was a reason that the artists were doing that because it's 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 shedding light on something yeah, deep they, and they, mystical they, that was. Yeah, happening. they began to see her more intimately connected role in the whole sacrificial existence salvation history yeah and her yeah Mm -hmm. yes exactly and it's also funny on the next page on page 69 he he points out the the passage from the first chapter of isaiah where isaiah is criticizing how dumb israel is by basically saying that you know the ox knows its owner the ass knows its master's crib israel yeah. does not know my people does not understand this essentially you know the farm animals know who takes care of them mm. and where their good is right even the dumb farm animals know mm-hmm. this but israel i've taken care of israel for this long and shown them this many wonders and they still don't get it yeah and so there's a kind of like you like you would say like this sort of this poetic imaginative beauty of these same animals around being the witness right and those the kind of the first to know yes and in this sort of hidden moment yeah that's really interesting mm-hmm. and so he points out like why christian iconography has always put the ox and the ass at the you know right there around mary and joseph and into everything else and why everyone's nativity sets have them and, and everything else it's right right kind of almost you can't imagine it without that at this point i love thinking about can we just pause and talk about nativity sets for a quick minute because i thought it was really interesting about you know how he talked about how the animals are in there mm-hmm. and then i was thinking about how saint francis was the first one that made the nativity set and actually i thought about saint francis a lot in this chapter because of poverty but also because so many of the saints ran off and to be in caves and this is so uh, again attached to this beginning this humble beginning of christ's birth and then also looking at his death and where he's laid like there's something about being in a cave right like there's this um imitation of christ in that way this this drastic imitation of him that like the saints do. And I, I was thinking about St. Francis and how he went to live in the cave and he had this um, beautiful connection with animals and, and Christ's, you know, living creatures. Um, But so much more than that with like the stigmata and all his mystical experiences that, that, you know, we, we don't shed light on enough, but, um, but I thought it was really neat that he was the first one to make a nativity set. And still to this very day, that's i mean that's what everybody everybody has a nativity set Mm -hmm. even if you you know you're not catholic it's just another one of those things the catholics gave to the world (laughs) 
your nativity sets. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Yeah, I just think it's so interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's curious it took a thousand years for someone to think of it, though. It is. Yeah, that is interesting. But there were paintings, though, of the... Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, of the birth of Christ uh-huh. and, and iconography and everything like that. And Yeah, no, I'm not I'm not saying, like, you know, Francis is out there in the wilderness, you know, carving up a precious moment's nativity set. But, right. But, uh-huh. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, I think the next section that interested me was him talking about Christ as the firstborn in all the different ways that that's true. I was really interested in that because I think like this can, this reminded me how scripture can so easily be misread based on our time in history and how we read things and how we understand things. Um, And also if we don't know, you know, the original language it was written in, et cetera, like it can be difficult to understand things fully, you know? And so for instance, we know Our Lady did not have any more children, but that wasn't the point of saying that he's the firstborn son. And Ratzinger really highlights why that saying he's the firstborn son is so important. So do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So if you're a, I mean, if you're a pious Israelite, you understand exactly what they're talking about in the first century. As far as that goes right now, you could, you know, most most families would have had other sons probably right and so a kind of firstborn son would do double duty in that sense and would sort of describe a fact about the various children but it's most importantly a theological concept of who the firstborn who like the first child to come into the family was meant to be right and he talks about how it goes back to exodus 13 and the consecration of all the firstborn male living things mm-hmm. in Israel it wasn't just humans, right? It wasn't just sort of Israelite sons. It was all all the animals, right? And so you, he talks about in in Exodus thirteen, it, it talks about the firstborn donkey or the firstborn lamb, or, or the firstborn human, right? You're meant to consecrate them, and. When it comes to the animals, right, that means that you sacrifice them. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to the human beings, right, the, the sons, you redeem them by offering sacrifice for them, right? And so that you can bring them back to you, right? And so it, it's partially a kind of a way of remembering the Exodus events, right? Where God takes the firstborn, mm-hmm. right? And so you, they, you know, I mean, doing this, you, you recognize the sacredness of life on the one hand, and then you recognize your own salvific past on the other by participating in this ritual of redeeming the firstborn because they're meant for God. But if you want them back, you can have them. You just, you need to offer a sacrifice in their place. Yeah. And if you think about it too, in light of the church, he is the firstborn of many right so he brings so those are the other two senses that he talks about too that are so so it's it's this sort of israelite practice on the one hand and then we know later on that he's the firstborn of many brethren as we read in hebrews so the firstborn among the dead think about all the sort of easter iconography of christ leading adam and eve out of the tomb being the first one 
right? To lead them into heaven. Yes. Right. So the firstborn of, of many brethren. And then also, right, the firstborn of the cosmos, essentially, because there's this really Christocentric thrust to what Ratzinger wants to show that Christ is the firstborn of all creation in the sense that he's the first thing in the divine mind, right? The world is created for Christ. Right. And so everything is meant to lead to that moment. Right? That's he's the so... center and the yeah. end, right? He's both of these things. So he's the firstborn, he's the center, he's the end, he's the alpha and the omega. It's so interesting because so Christ being in the father's mind, but also Christ was there from the very beginning, you know, so you have this, I guess that's the mystery of the Trinity and I should probably not try to get into that right now. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of things we could go into there that we really should skip over do it right yeah, questions it. about like why you know like why did the incarnation happen other things like that but the, yeah. the one last thing on this that i will say that i had never thought about before but that he that ratzinger i don't think he he doesn't mention here but he made me imagine and this might i haven't thought this all the way through so maybe this needs some more thought all right let's hear it the event where it's not in the book. At least I don't think so. Um, oh, maybe it's in the epilogue. Maybe at the very end, the finding Christ, finding the child Jesus in the temple. Mm-hmm. There's there's almost a sense in which it makes me think if we if we talk about Christ as the firstborn, Christ is the firstborn, and so his family has to redeem him by offering the sacrifice when they present him in the right. temple, the presentation in the temple. So that's that's where his that's where the holy family redeems their firstborn. Right, they offer their sacrifice. Right, they, they bring him home. They redeem the firstborn that way. But in another sense, the presentation is also a redemption by the father, right? Because the father redeems his firstborn, Christ, mm-hmm. which is why the child Jesus talks about being in his father's home. Mm. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's really interesting. Because right, there, there's a certain sense in which he comes home to the temple. Yeah. Sorry, that just. Yeah, that that blew my mind. Okay. Yeah. So cool. it's just it's this it's this really yeah. interesting dynamic where he's obviously the son of. Right. He's the son of Mary and Joseph. He's adopted mm-hmm. into Joseph's line. They perform their sacrificial offering and they redeem him according to the law, mm-hmm. right? As is right and proper. And at the same time, Christ is also redeemed for his heavenly father, which is why he would feel this is why he talks about in um in that story about needing to be, you know, d- didn't you know that I would have to be in my father's house? Or it's, it's just it's perfectly natural. This is what you should expect. Yes. Right? This is my home. Yes. Right. Yeah. yeah. That makes a lot of sense. That's really cool. That's a beautiful thought. Now the shepherds. Yeah. Talk about the shepherds. Yeah. And again, we're, I, I really think there's just such a theme of poverty going on here because even again, we see in the saints, 
um, like Marian apparitions and like these sorts of things, like it's always these shepherds or the poor or, you know, these children, et cetera, who are shepherds, you know, and it's, it's really interesting that shepherds are the first to know of Christ's birth and go and see him. Um, why shepherds, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Ratzinger brings up the point the, I mean, relatively obvious point, right? Christ is the shepherd. Mm-hmm. And so there's a certain sense in which there's a kind of harmonious beauty of it being the shepherds who are called and told and, you know, whom to, to whom the angels manifest themselves and are told to go witness, right? Shepherds to witness the true shepherd. There's also, there's a really big theme in the Old Testament of God being very angry with Israel's shepherds where they are through usually through the voice of the prophets, Israel's shepherds, as in their leaders, mm-hmm. right? Their leaders are called shepherds, especially in, if you look in the, in the book of Ezekiel um, in chapter 30, 32 and 33 and 34, I think where he goes on this long screed against Israel's shepherds, a, a, AKA their leaders and how Israel's shepherds, have failed to guard the sheep and they've eaten they, they've eaten their own their own sheep essentially they're taking advantage and they're essentially just destroying their own people right so mm-hmm. the shepherds really get you know Ezekiel really lights up the shepherds for failing on their duty mm-hmm. but here you have these watchful shepherds right are the ones who are meant to go witness this event they're the sort of they're the watchful ones so you finally have good shepherds essentially you have the good shepherds actually out in the field yeah. to go witness the one good shepherd too so you have this really sort of really curious contrast between this really large old testament israelite theme of israel shepherds being really unwatchful mm-hmm. and be not taking care of the people and then here in luke seeing these watchful shepherds who go in haste, right? They are doing what they're meant to do. Yes. And again, it shows how the, the poor and the humble and the simple are entering our call, like are entering into this mystery of God. And, and I think it's due to their watchfulness that they're able to even see and and hear this call well he points out that they go in haste which is something we talked about before where uh joseph goes he receives the message from the angel and joseph goes and takes the family into egypt with haste right and in you know joseph is the just man and he's imitating abraham who is told by the angel to go take isaac up the mountain and he rises early the next morning and goes with his servants. And so Abraham is making haste and the Joseph, the just makes haste. And so we're not told that the shepherds are righteous and, and just, you know, we, we don't know anything about that. Maybe they were, I don't know. Um, I imagine, they but are. they, they do what the other, the other just men that we've been thinking about do. They obey the angels and they go with haste. Right. Yeah. And on page 73, it talks about uh, Ratzinger talks about the angel of the Lord appearing to the shepherds and how they were originally afraid. But then that fear was wiped out. And and then you have the beautiful glory to God in the highest um, 
him come into play with the angels, how the heavens opened up and we could see this. So there's just this like great joy on heaven and earth and, and this heavenly, it's amazing that like the shepherds were able to witness this huge heavenly rejoicing. I mean, I imagine for the rest of their lives, uh, they had this, uh, how, how do you forget that? You know, this sort of opening of heaven before you and the angels before you, this is a huge vision. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly significant. Yeah. Well, he remind. I mean, he reminds us that like the language of heaven is song too, which is a really interesting thing to sort of meditate on, I think. Um, and it's, I mean, you, 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 you mostly also, you mostly also see it in Dante too, right? When Dante's writing the, uh, the Paradiso, right? Everyone, you know, it's, it's song, it's poetry, it's rhyme. It's, uh, and so like the, the, the angels language, is song mm. and it's i mean it's part of why the liturgy is most properly sung and chanted too right this particip- this participation in the heavenly liturgy or it's the reason we sing and chant the liturgy too right because it's mm-hmm. a participation in the worship of the saints and the angels mm-hmm. so ratzinger here talks about in glory the glory to god in the highest the translation and how tricky it is so who is God talking about when he's talking about um, his goodwill, like who and, and the people, do you want to talk about the translation a little bit? Yeah, he explains it really well. Um, But he does point out the parallels with the father's voice at the baptism and the transfiguration, for instance, where, where Christ is the one with whom he is pleased. And so the angel's message being to those with whom the father is pleased is kind of a, a is it, it, that parallel means that those who are formed in Christ, right, who are conformed to Christ ultimately are those with whom the father is pleased. And those are the ones to whom peace will be given because he divides the he divides the line of the angels up into kind of two sections. Right, the first is that there's right glory to God, no matter what, no matter who, no matter where, when, or even if there was no creation at all, God would be glorious, or right? He would possess right. glory in Himself. Yeah. The second line about the gift of peace, however, right, the gift of peace ultimately can only come to those who are in Christ. Right. So it makes sense that there's a that this this message of peace is directed to a specific group as well. So he uses that to go into a short digression on grace and freedom. Um, you know, whole libraries of books could be written about that question. But he he simply he he just spends a little bit of time and and makes sure to point out that there's always this mysterious interweaving of these two realities where God is the first mover, right? Everything goes back to him and his causality, right? That he's the cause of all things. And at the same time, we also know that human beings have a kind of freedom that's granted to them where we're not puppets on a string, right? And so the question always becomes, well, how does God's grace and God's will interact with my freedom, right? How do those two, how do those two, how are those two things real together? It's why 
so many people will think, oh, well, maybe free will is not real or, well, maybe providence isn't real because it would seem that only one of those can be really real. But he points out, well, no, it's you have to fly right down the middle, right? Both of those things need to be affirmed. Right. And there's a lot you can say about them and how they work together. But you should never think that you can kind of like put the pin in it in the sense that ah, I comprehend this perfectly now, right? You can, you can understand and come to know a lot of things that are true about it. But this, this interweaving of these two realities is always this kind of mysterious, mystical relationship where you have to know, well, both of these things are true. And so how do I, how do I live this out? Right. Now if we skip to one of the last sections. We're almost almost to the end here. Um, we had mentioned before briefly when we were talking about the the swaddling clothes and the connection to the passion and everything. We talked about the presentation, I think, a little bit. Um, he brings it up specifically here. He talks about the differences between the different days that happen, right? The eighth day of circumcision, uh, the 40th day of Mary's purification, right? Christ's redemption. Um, and so this idea and, and Paul uses the language specifically that I think he uses in here, we're talking about how Christ is born under the law and where there are things that Christ shows, he, now he says things explicitly, like in, in the Beatitudes, he says things like, you know, don't think that I came to, to abolish the law and I didn't, I came to fulfill it. Right. And so the fact that Christ who is God incarnate follows the law is really fascinating. And the most obvious sort of kind of pointless example that the gospels tell us is his baptism, where he goes to John and John basically says, why am I baptizing Baptizing you? But he says it. Yeah. And he says, well, you know, it's, it's, you know, for, to fulfill all righteousness for now, this do this. Right. And so Christ, the creator of the laws, right, submits himself to his own commanded and promulgated Old Testament law. And it also is to inspire us in imitation of him. We are all supposed to imitate Christ. So, you know, it, as you said, he came and the the laws were not abolished but fulfilled. And I think that this is really important because we can see that um, there are in imitation of Christ, we need to be obedient to the church. There's a certain obedience we're called to just as he was obedient to the laws, even though he was the God made man, he chose to do that as a leader to show what we are supposed to be and do as well. Right. The tradition has a really rich theology of Christ, the teacher in so many different ways. And normally you kind of think about that. Oh, it's Christ. Well, he wandered around and he, he was a preacher. He was a rabbi or he, he taught a lot, mm-hmm. but he taught just as much in his existence, his actions, what he did as well. And so all of these things that he does are also modes of his teaching. And the fathers have a really interesting concept of how salvation actually happens and they put it in this kind of very pithy line and they you know that all of them in in one way or another say what is not assumed is not redeemed what's not assumed is not redeemed in other words 
in order for Christ to redeem something about our situation, he had to take it on. And so the idea is, well, if, you know, if he wasn't really fully human, then he wouldn't have really redeemed humanity. And so him being under the law, right, he assumes the law on himself and therefore he redeems that as well. And so it's this, again, this paradox of continuity where he comes into Israel and there's a kind of perfect continuity in his fulfillment of the law. And yet there's a radical novelty, this radically new thing at the same time happens. Very interesting. Yeah. And the same thing happens with Mary's purification too, right? So Christ didn't need to be baptized. Right. And if he submitted himself to baptism for the sake of all righteousness in the same sense, right? It's after childbirth, women go through, right? You can read it in Leviticus, right? That sort of ritual purification. Not now, a lot of people sort of get kind of upset at that language. They think, well, it's, I guess they, I guess the, you know, Israel thought childbirth was sinful. And that's not the case at all. Not right. at all. Um, it's a kind of liturgical act mm-hmm. of realizing something has happened. And now there has to be a kind of ritual purification mm-hmm. to re-enter the Israelite worship. I mean, men had to do similar things, not because of childbirth, right? But they would have had to have their own ritual purifications for plenty of other things that they would do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this idea, well, Mary as well, right? We, we don't have any time to get into, you know, the theology of, sort of the Immaculate Conception and things like that. But, right, if you know, Mary as well, right, Christ submits to baptism without needing it. Mary submits to this ritual purification without needing it. it. But she's for the sake of all righteousness, right? She submits herself to the law because it's because to not do that would be sinful. Yes. Right. Just because you don't need, you know, you, you might not need the speed limit signs to drive in a safe speed, Mm -hmm. but if you choose to ignore them, then that's a problem, right? So just like if there's no need, they don't technically need these laws Mm -hmm. to be righteous, but the fact that they willingly submit themselves to do it just manifests the righteousness that is inherent within them. Yes. All right. Well, there's probably a lot more we could say about this chapter, but for the sake of time, we should probably wrap up. We've got one more chapter next week. Chapter four, the wise men from the East and the flight into Egypt. Those are, I think, two of my sort of favorite moments, actually, in the story. Me too. (laughs) I literally cannot wait to get to this point. Um, I think with this past chapter, what was interesting was that Ratzinger um, really focused on the historical aspect and didn't really get into, like, exactly how the birth took place and all the details or anything like that, because we just don't have them. And there's so much mystery in it, but he did really shed light on what happened around this mystery. So what was going on with the shepherds? What was going on in heaven, this rejoicing and this joy? What was going on in general in, in the manger where you have this spirit of poverty and you have these deep symbolism, um, this deep symbolism going on within the story, within this time period, within history. Um, but also we don't know what everyone felt like and who was there and who wasn't there. And, all, you know, all of these, were there angels and maidens helping our lady Were you know, were there, what was St. Joseph doing, et cetera, et cetera. We don't know these details. And I think, 
why, that's why sacred art is just so beautiful, specifically icons um, that shed light on the mystery of the nativity um, and show like these different layers of theology um, during the birth of Christ. So I think if I could recommend anything to go with this chapter to just continue to meditate on, it would be to look up the icons of the nativity scene this week and just sit with those icons, pray with those icons, um, and ask the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost to just, um, enlighten each of you personally on the beauty and mystery of the birth of Christ in the hiddenness in the night with the star without all those details that we would just love to know. Yeah, I think that's probably the best suggestion. I don't know. I was going to say something about if you want to read more. (laughs) Um, I don't know how easy they are to find. You can easily purchase a volume online somewhere. I don't know if they're free online anywhere. I'm sure there are probably some, but the Nativity Hymns, of St. Ephraim. Yeah. was a fourth or fifth century deacon in the Eastern church. Can't remember it's exactly when, but St. Ephraim of Syria was a, uh, him, a hymnist essentially, right? He, yes. he wrote poetry and, and song and he has quite a number of hymns on the nativity that are really, really fascinating. So he's doing this kind of imaginative theology in his poetry mm-hmm. there that are that are really really beautiful and so if you can find those i'm sure it's uh, the fruit of contemplation those are great to read as well so yeah that's all i have so me too this is yeah this chapter was really interesting it's not it was what dense. i expected yeah mm-hmm. um yeah with the historical aspect and everything but i felt like i learned a lot so you good yeah all right well see you next we'll, week yeah See you then.